us, we will be in Revelation chapter 10 and 11 this morning, so you're welcome to uh, turn there um, with us uh, now. Recently in Revelation, we, we saw, you may remember a few weeks ago, the seven seals. Uh, then last week, we saw the first six of the seven trumpets, and we should be seeing a theme of seven things going on. Um, in the midst of the seals, between the sixth and the seventh seal, you may remember there was an interlude. Uh, where we see some other stuff going on before we get to the seventh. This morning, we're going to see the same with regard to the trumpets. We're going to see another interlude uh, before we get to the seventh trumpet. Um, And this morning's interlude uh, focuses on God's call to his people. As we move through these six trumpets, as we live through them, what is our calling? What is our function to be? So with that in mind, let's turn now. Revelation 10, I'm going to read some, but not quite all of our verses Uh, This morning, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun, his legs, like the pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Skipping to verse 8, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat, make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from his hand of the angel and I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then chapter 11, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. I was told, rise, measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell in the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud 
Their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning to make sense of these words before us. Words complicated, words hard to hear. Oh, Father, make yourself known to us. Help us to know our Savior better because of our time and your word this morning. Help us to know better your purpose for your people this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just this past week, I was, or last weekend, I was with the youth on a retreat, and it was reminded of a story uh, that I think might be helpful for us. Many of you have heard the name Jim Elliott before. Um, he was a missionary to Ecuador, and they made contact with a tribe there. I won't try to even say the name of it. Um, but they began to make some friendly encounters with this tribe. They thought they were making headway. They thought things were going to go well. And he and, and three other missionaries were there ready to go in. And 10 of the warriors from that tribe killed the four missionaries. Um, a very sad day. Um, Jim Elliott, before that, at some point, had written this. I want you to think about it. A person is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Hear that again. A person is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. What did Eliot mean? I think he knew. He understood his calling and that regardless of the temporal consequences, he was called to go forth, sharing the great news of his Savior, Jesus Christ. As we move into the, this interlude this morning and, and starting in chapter 10, the, the focus here, it's a little different than we've seen so far in, in the book of, uh, of Revelation. In the midst of the seals in that interlude, we saw that God's people were protected and sealed, if you will, from, protected from spiritual danger. Now the focus here now turns uh, to believers on earth, not, 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 not how we are in our heavenly existence protected but how we live out our life here on earth amidst these seven trumpets, amidst the persecution, amidst the tribulation in our world today. People have, yes, been sealed. But there are many tribulations to come, and, and we see that here, and we see the calling that our great God has for us. Let's look. Verse 1, what do we see? We see a mighty angel. And, of course, we, we see a mighty angel. We want to ask, we want to know who is this angel, right? Why is he there? Do you see the description? What, how does he describe in verse 1? Wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, voice. In verse 3, voice like a lion roaring. Who does this sound like? Remember chapter 1, who is it that comes riding on the clouds? The Son of Man, Right? Where, where in chapter 4 did we see a rainbow? Right over the throne itself. In chapter 1, who had the face like a sun, like we see here? But Jesus himself, the son of man, who came in a pillar of fire to the Israelites, whose feet in chapter 1 were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace? Jesus, the son of man. Who did we hear in chapter 5? Who did we hear called a lion? But of course, the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain. So this angel that we have before us, as we see his description, who is he? He's very closely 
to be very closely identified with Jesus himself. Now, it may be that he's directly to be identified and he's symbolically Jesus, or, or, or it may, and maybe more likely, he's a representative of Jesus. He comes as his representative, and so he comes bringing some of, uh, of Jesus' attributes so that, that Jesus' authority might be made known. Now, what, what, is, what, is, what is he doing? He has a little scroll, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But in verse 2, what do we see? His, his right foot is on the sea. His, his left foot is on the land. Here we have a, a picture that we've actually seen, I think, multiple times. And we see over and over the book of Revelation as, it, as John over and over wants to remind us that God is sovereign, that he's in control. Now, this picture isn't like you or I standing uh, at the ocean, you know, at the beach, you know, and you have one foot like in a, in a half an inch of water and the other half on sort of dry land. I don't think that's the picture here. Imagine a towering angel, not with a foot in an inch of water, but on the sea, and the other on the land. We're not told how big this angel is, and I don't think that's necessarily the point, but he must be very large. And by planting his foot on both the land and the sea, he's proclaiming the Lord's sovereignty, Jesus' sovereignty himself. In a way, it prepares us for what we're going to see when we get to chapter 13 as the beast comes out. Where does the beast come? One beast comes from the sea. Another comes from the land. John's reminding us, do not fear. Do not fear the Lord is sovereign over everything. It's in this midst that the angel calls out in verse 3, and the seven thunders sound. What's going on here? We don't know. We, we don't know what these seven thunders are. Do you see what happens in verse four? When the seven thunders are sounded, I was about to write it, but then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's likely that these seven thunders are another set of, of seven judgments, like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls that we're gonna see later. And so there's a, a fourth series of seven but we're not given any of the details. Now, sometimes if you're anything like me, you say, that's not fair. I want to know what John, I mean, John got to see this. Why don't we get to see it? But God says, as he does in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. It's a good reminder, I think. I, I think the fact that, that John wasn't allowed to tell us and tells us that he wasn't allowed to tell us it's good for us this book of Revelation is not meant to be this puzzle book for us. Where we, if we are able to put all the pieces of this puzzle together, then suddenly we can know exactly how everything's going to come to pass. And we can know exactly when. That's not the point. Instead, I think, as we read through the book of Revelation, as we read through the scripture in general, we must remain humble. Willing to be like Jesus during his earthly ministry. Do you remember what he said? But concerning the day... And the hour, no one knows. Not even the angel of heavens, nor the son, but the father only. We need to trust him, humbly come to his word. Hopefully we're doing that this morning. And so the angel, he has this little scroll. Now we hear scroll, we should be immediately reminded of, and we can't talk about all the details of it, but what we saw back in chapter five, where there's another scroll, you remember that scroll? The scroll that nobody could open, until the lamb comes on the scene, the lamb who was slain. 
Jesus himself, and he is able to open that scroll. That scroll was, uh, was the symbolic, if you will, of God's great plan. His plan of redemption, his plan of judgment, his plan that actually includes even the suffering of his people, this very plan that we've seen playing out as we move through the book of Revelation. Now, there's something shocking that happens here, and I don't know if you noticed it as I was reading, but, but John is told to go and to take this scroll. Now, if you've been John and you've seen everything that John has seen, if I, if I were him, I'd be a little timid at this point. I, I'm, no, the, the last scroll I saw, only Jesus could open. Now, this scroll we, we see is already open. But regardless, the fact that I am going to be able to hold this scroll, and not to mention I got to approach that angel <laughs> and ask him for it. What, me? And he approaches, and he takes the scroll. The scroll is given to him in verse 9 and following. Well, what is the angel telling? Take and eat it. It will make you your stomach bitter, but your mouth will be sweet as honey. So this is strange. Normally we don't eat scrolls and stuff. Um, But I guess it was a little more normal back then. Ezekiel was called to eat a similar scroll. Okay? This was normal for God's prophets. So if you want to be a prophet, we got to be able to eat scrolls, I guess. Um, And for Ezekiel, Ezekiel eats a scroll and it's sweet. And the sweetness reminds him of the goodness of God's word. But the bitterness reminds him of the words that are on that scroll. Words of lamentation. Words of mourning. Words of woe. And as John eats this scroll, we, we see something similar going on. Okay? Why is it sweet? It's sweet because contained on that scroll is is the wonderful, the beautiful story of redemption. The beautiful story of God's plan. Of his coming and saving his people. But there's something else that makes it sweet. This may be a little bit harder for us to swallow. In that there's another part of it that should be sweet for us. And that is that there should be sweetness in God's plan of judgment that's also written on that scroll. We don't usually like to think like that. But remember what we read before in chapter 6. What what is it that the saints are doing, the martyred saints? They're they're crying out, how long, O Lord? How long until you judge and you avenge our blood? You see, there is and there should be a sweetness to God's judgment for his people. A sweetness to it as God demonstrates his justice and as also we're reminded that we can truly rest and that we can truly trust him. That his plan, all of his plan, not just the part that we like, but that all of his plan is good. All of his plan is glorious. All of it is wonderful. But it's not just sweet, as John eats it, right? It's also bitter. Why is it bitter? It's bitter because of the suffering of the saints. It's bitter because we live a life in the midst of tribulation and sorrow and sadness. It's also bitter because, as we read in Ezekiel 33, What does God say? What does the Lord declare? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
he says in Ezekiel. It's bitter because we should take no joy in the death of the wicked. And we should take no joy and we should, we, we should find it bitter that, that the world so often rejects the gospel. And so the scroll is both sweet and it's bitter. And as we think of John eating the scroll, I want us to see like, in, in a way, as John eats it, and we're going to see this more as we move into the next, it, it's somewhat symbolic of, of what we are called to as well. As he eats the scroll, <laughs> so too do we, in a sense. And we should find God's incredible plan, the scroll. We should find it both sweet and bitter. We should find it sweet as we see the wonderful glory of the gospel. We should find it bitter as we see ourselves living out in a lost and dying world of people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We shouldn't be a people who who quickly drive into our driveways and quickly go into our garages so that we don't have to think of the loss to our left, to our right, across the street, behind us. And John, as he eats the scroll, he's identifying with Jesus, right? He's taking the scroll as Jesus took the scroll. And he's connected with him because his identity is in Christ as ours is. And in taking the scroll, John is taking on a prophetic calling. Look at verse 11. I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What is John called to do? Just as you and I are called to do, as we'll see more in in chapter 11, we're called to take what? The gospel. The bitter, sweet message of the gospel and God's great plan to the world. And as we move uh, from chapter 10 to chapter 11, we're, we're meant to see that, that, that what is true of John here, it's, it's true of our calling. It's true of Jesus' church, and we see it as we turn to these two witnesses that are probably bizarre to us at first. And it all begins whenever John is told to measure the temple. <laughs> he's told to measure it, and then in verse 2, he's told, but, but, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's being given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This, this measuring, it, it should be connected in Ezekiel. There's another measuring of the temple, okay? In chapter 21 of Revelation, we're going to see another measuring, that of the holy eternal city. And in both places, this measuring, it's meant to be a sign of God's promise of his presence and his protection over his people You see, because he's present, because he's present in those bounds, he will protect his people. You can think of it like a surveyor, you know, like you buy a piece of property, you want to get a surveyor, so you know the lines, you know what's yours. And what is his is being staked out and staked out clearly. His people will be, his temple will be protected. But what's up with the outer court? This means that God's people, even though they're spiritually protected, they're going to experience tribulation in this life, but his promises will still stand. 
he will protect his people. As we read in in verse 2, for 42 months, the outside court, the court of the Gentiles, will be trampled and the city will be trampled. Meaning that, that though we're protected spiritually, the church will suffer physically. We'll suffer in this, in this world. And the, the, we'll suffer the various tribulations that we've already seen in Revelations, the one that we're going to see exemplified by these two witnesses. Now here's what we must not miss. Revelation 11, we have a temple. This is not some future temple. This is not some temple that's going to be built one day in, in Jerusalem again. Do you remember Paul's questioning of the Corinthians, what does he say? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Who? You. We. We are God's temple. And he is present with us right now through his Holy Spirit. Yes, Yes, we'll suffer tribulation in this life. But if you are in Christ, his spirit will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Now, to help us to understand all of this, John has given a vision of God's two witnesses, which I think help describe how God's going to remain present with us and what our calling is. So we have these two witnesses, verse 3, and we're told that... um, for, for 1,260 days, they're going to witness. Now, if you do the math real quick, 1,260 equals how many months? 42. We've already heard 42 months, right? Um, the same, 42 months that the outer court's going to be trampled, what's going to happen is these, these witnesses are going to be witnessing uh, for Christ. Now, we want to ask the question, well, why 42? Right? We can just make our best guesses, I guess. Uh, But I think it's at least helpful. Because we're going to see this over and over. We're going to see it multiple times in chapter 12 and and chapter 13. This 42 is going to keep coming back. 42 months is how many years? 3.5 years. Okay. Which, if you're doing math, 3.5 is half of what? Don't you love math class? 3.5. Really? Um, 3.5 is half of 7. 7 being the number of completeness, right? So it may be that this idea is that God, that this suffering that the church is going to go through, this, this 42 months, is going to be cut short. <laughs> it's going to be limited in length. This number 42, it corresponds to Elijah, who we, who we actually see referenced to in our passage uh, this morning. He, he, he shuts up the heavens for how many months? 42. Okay, that's a good answer. Uh, how many encampments did the Israelites have? Okay, y'all are good. Y'all have been studying your Old Testament. We're all caught up. And the 42 encampments. And, and what, 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 think of those 42 encampments of the Israelites. Who is present there with them? God, present there in their midst. Okay, should, all of this is to be a reminder of that. And these, <laughs> these 42 months, like everything, and as we move through the book of Revelation, it's symbolic. These 42 months, they're symbolic of that time from, from Jesus' resurrection until he returns. So, so we are in the midst of these 42 months that we're talking about right now. 
And so, God grants authority to these witnesses in verse three. Authority, and, and they'll go forth, and what will they do? They'll prophesy. Now, you may be asking, like, who are these witnesses, right? How do we know when the witnesses come? You know, we need to keep our eye out for these witnesses, right? Let's think about, what do we learn about them? Verse four, they're described as two olive trees and two lampstands. Okay, strange. Verse six, these, these witnesses, they have the power to shut the sky. They have the power to turn water into blood and every kind of plague. So those are some descriptions of them. Let's put a few of the things together. Have we seen lamps stands so far in the book of Revelation? About, all the way back in chapter one. And what were they? The lampstands represented who? The church. We shouldn't be surprised when we see these things connecting, right? The olive trees. What about these olive trees? And Zechariah, uh, he has a vision. And, and he sees two anointed ones. Shouldn't surprise us. Two anointed ones. We have two witnesses here. Two anointed ones who are described as olive trees. Why olive trees? What are olive trees a source of? Oil. And what does that oil do? Supplies light. Despise the fuel necessary for the light in the lampstands. In other words, the fuel for the light stands is provided for. And as we have mentioned earlier in Revelation, this is ultimately what? This, this fuel is what? Holy Spirit himself who is present with his church, with his people. So we have these lampstands, we have olive trees, and, and, and then we have the, they have this power to shut the sky and the power to bring plagues and water to blood. Who, who is that? Moses and Elijah. Okay? Except in this case, they're like combined together. And maybe you can even think of how at the very end of James, uh, James reminds us that Elijah prayed and God shut up the sky, and what does he use that for? Is we too are able to do that if we pray. We too have that same power. What, what does all this point, at, point us to? This is where we really want to get. Sorry it's taking me so long. These points point us to the fact that these two witnesses are not some individuals for us to look forward to in the future and one day they're going to show up on the scene, but they're actually representatives of the whole church as we are called to be witnesses of our Savior Jesus Christ. They're symbolic. They're a picture of us of you and me, of our calling. In fact, this is why we, we read, I mean, if you think of it, the church is scattered to the ends of earth, and this is why we read in our text that, that whenever they're killed, what is everybody able to see? Everybody's able to see it. Everybody's able to see that they're dead. It's not because of some technological in, invention that, you know, because we have TVs now, we're gonna, you know, and all the news channels are gonna focus in on these two witnesses. And in fact, this is why they witnessed for that 3.5 years right? It's the same amount of time that what? That holy city is going to be trampled. It's the same amount of time that we're going to see next week in chapter 12 that the church represented by the woman will be oppressed. We should, all these things in Revelation, they begin to connect together so incredibly. And what are these witnesses called to do? They're called to go forth with ministry. They're called and they go forth with their testimony we see in verse 7. Their purpose and ours, is, is to share the word, to share the gospel. But that requires sharing both bad news and good news. 
It requires us both sharing that which is bitter as well as that which is sweet. Sometimes that, I think, is a struggle for us. We like the sweet news of the gospel. But the problem is you cannot have the sweet without the bitter. The bad news, judgment must be shared or there is no good news. There is no good news without it. Romans 3, 23, we learned some of the bad news, right? Many of you have it memorized for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the beginning of chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Without the conviction of sin, without the conviction of sin, there is no need for the good news of the gospel. That bitterness must be tasted before the sweetness can be tasted. Oh, but when you understand that bitterness, it becomes so beautiful. Romans 6, 23, again, but in fullness. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's bitter and it's sweet. Our world does not like the bitter part. Probably doesn't really like the sweet part much either. But we must give both. We must share both the bad news and the good news with all around us. Now, when these two witnesses in verse seven, when they finish their testimony, what happens? When they finish their testimony, this recurs at the very end, the very end of all time, when the testimony of the church, maybe you could say, is finished. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This is the final war. The final war of Satan against the church. And the picture here is that the church appears to be defeated. For three and a half days, should notice a connection from earlier, right? We are talking about three and a half years, now we're talking about three and a half days. All will look on the death of the witnesses, the death of the church. Verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You see, the world will think it has defeated Christ's church and it will rejoice, it will party, on their bodies, if you will. Now, this is symbolic, it's a picture, it's a dark picture. But we must not understand or think that the church will be completely defeated. A remnant will surely remain as we see elsewhere. But to the watching world, to all those looking on at this moment, it will appear so. It'll appear as though the church has been defeated. Maybe the numbers become so insignificant at that point that there's so little impact for it to be known. But it will only last for three and a half days. Symbolic days, of course. It only lasts for three and a half days. Any victory, though, that the enemy thought he had will be very short-lived. Just as that victory that he must have thought he had on those days that Jesus was in the tomb. The enemy surely thought 
he had won a victory. He defeated God's plan. What we read is yet again at the end of time, again he will think I have defeated God's plan. I've succeeded. And we may be wondering as we hear these things, I thought God was going to protect his people. We read earlier in the midst of the seal, you know, God seals his people. He protects his church. Sometimes we put promises on God that he has never made to us. The promises of spiritual protection. But we see other protections here in, in, our, in our passage. Verse 5, what would happen if anyone would cause harm to his witnesses? Fire pours from their mouth. And consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, now this sounds pretty, well, it is. that's just like a crazy picture, isn't it? The fire pouring from their mouths. I don't think it's, it's not literal fire. The fire that's pouring from their mouth is the word of God. The fire that's pouring from their mouth is the testimony of the witnesses the bittersweet news of God's incredible plan, his grand story of redemption. But also, but also of judgment. And it pours out like fire upon them. Pours out like fire upon those who don't believe. For those who who don't believe it is judgment, a judgment far worse than, than fire actually coming out and consuming them at that moment. We're talking about an eternal destruction, not an earthly one. And in verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. God, God restores his people. He brings new life to them. What do we see him doing here? But vindicating his church. Vindicating them. And that same world that jeered over them now sees them exalted. As the great God enters in to issue his final judgments. He protects his church. He's going to preserve it. He's going to raise it again on the last day. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The warning. That, the, that, that fire that had come from the witness's mouth. It comes true as judgment begins to pour out on them. Now, as you read this passage, you might quickly think, as you look at those last words, the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. You you might think that there's an expectation of a huge conversion at the end and a bunch of people coming to Christ at at the very end. It's probably not correct. We don't see that elsewhere. And maybe the biggest problem is the connection of that word terrified with them. That word terrified is never connected with what we think of as a godly fearing of our great God. No, they're terrified of him. This This appears not to be a giving a glory to God, 
out of faith. Not a giving glory to him out of submission to him and who he is because he's their glorious and their great God because he is our glorious and our great God who has saved us and redeemed us. That's not what we seem to see here. Instead, it seems to be an inability in that moment to do anything other than recognize him for who he truly is. Much as the Egyptians, you'll you'll remember after many of the plagues and stuff, they, they, they... They did the same thing. They reacted in similar ways towards God, but it wasn't a a true fear of God. It wasn't a true glory for them. You see, I think what's being spoken of here is that last day that's looked forward to in Isaiah 45, where we read this. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. What we read of in Philippians 2 So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will proclaim him, and on that last day, proclaim him to be who he really is. And the question for us all is what will that look like? I hope, I pray for you in here that that last day will not be filled with terror. It won't be a terrified acknowledgement of him as the great God, as judgment is poured out. I pray it will be a faithful fearing of him as the great God, the great king who has saved you, who has rescued you, who has poured out his love upon you. All of this leads to the last trumpet. The last trumpet is first talked about in chapter 10. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be, just, would be fulfilled, just as he had announced to his servants, the prophets. The promise is that there will be a day when there's no more delay. And the trumpet will sound. And with that, trumpet, with that seventh trumpet sounding, the call of the saints, how long, O Lord, will finally and completely be answered. We read about the seventh trumpet in verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, who are they? The church, right? They represent us, the church, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God. What do they do again? But fall on their faces and they worshiped him saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. The time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name. 
both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Is there anything more that needs to be said? I have a couple of things. Or one thing, really. God will bring all things to completion. That is the picture. He's going to bring it to completion. Judgment will come for those who are not his. And those who are his, those who are wed to him, sealed with his blood, will forever be with him. That picture, God's temple in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Do you know the significance of the ark? What was that in the Old Testament? That was his presence among his people. It was God's footstool. It was where God's presence was right there in the midst of his people in the wilderness wanderings and later in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant at this point hadn't been seen since 500 or more years before Christ. We were told here on the last day, it makes its reappearance as God comes to set up his eternal residence with his people, to be present with them for all, all of eternity. As we'll read later in Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We live now longing we should be longing for that last day. But as we live now, we have a task before us here and now in this world. We're called to be faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses of that sweet and bitter scroll. Telling people, telling the world the bad news that the wages of sin is death, but telling them the incredible good news, that the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're able to go forward as witnesses because we know the glory of that which awaits. As Jim Elliot said, a person is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We look forward to that day where everything sad will become untrue. And we say even this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your words this morning. Words of encouragement and reminder of your presence with us now. 
and your eternal presence with us in the last day. Father, you call us now to go forward as faithful witnesses. Oh, would you help us to do so? We need you present with us. We thank you that you have provided the oil for our lampstands. We thank you this morning, Holy Spirit, that you are present with us and present with, our, with your church. Would you fuel us that we would be faithful witnesses? Faithfully witnessing to you in good times and in bad. Faithfully taking the good news of Jesus Christ into the world as we long for that last day. And we do say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in his matchless name. Amen.